A brief reading from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Epilogue, Part 2. Chapter 7. Examining only those expressions of the will of historical characters which related to events as commands, historians have assumed that the events were dependent on the commands. Examining the events themselves, and that connection in which the historical characters stand with the masses, we have found that historical characters and their commands are dependent on the events. An incontestable proof of this deduction is to be found in the fact that, however many commands may be given, the event does not take place if there is no other cause to produce it. But as soon as an event does take place, whatever it may be, out of the number of all the expressions of the will of different persons, there are always some which, from their meaning and time of utterance, are related to the events as commands. Having reached this conclusion, we can directly and positively answer these two essential questions of history. 1. What is power? 2. What force produces the movements of peoples? 1. Power is a relation of a certain person to other persons in which that person takes the less direct share in an act the more he expresses opinions, theories, and justifications of the combined action. 2. The movement of peoples is not produced by the exercise of power, nor by intellectual activity, nor even by a combination of the two, as historians have supposed, but by the activity of all the men taking part in the event, who are always combined in such a way that those who take most direct part in the action take the smallest share in responsibility for it, and vice versa. In its moral aspect, the cause of the event is conceived of as power, in its physical aspect, as those who were subject to that power. But since moral activity is inconceivable apart from physical, the cause of the event is found in neither the one nor the other, but in the conjunction of the two. Or, in other words, the conception of cause is not applicable to the phenomenon we are examining. In our final analysis, we are brought to the circle of infinity, to that utmost limit to which the human intellect is brought in every department of thought, if it is not merely playing with its subject. Electricity produces heat, heat produces electricity. Atoms are attracted, atoms are repelled. Speaking of the mutual relations of heat and of electricity and of atoms, we cannot say why it is so. We, can, we say it is so because it is unthinkable otherwise, because it must be so, because it is a law. The same thing applies also to historical phenomena. Why does a war or a revolution come to pass? We do not know. We only know that to bring either result to pass men form themselves into a certain combination in which all take part. And we say that this is because it is unthinkable otherwise, because it is a law. It's a very interesting book, War and Peace. Uh, I'm sure I'll get into it more in the future. This piece of it that I've run into has me thinking today. Um, it's a 
strange conclusion he makes, but definitely unique among historians. Uh, there's a lot of words going on there, so I'm going to break it down a little bit uh, just to try and get across the points that I'm thinking about. First, right, he says that historians assume cause and effect within history based on the commands of, of certain men. They, they assume that because events follow commands, then they must be inspired by them. That's a scientific fallacy, though. On the other hand, or in opposition to this, I suppose, is a better way of putting it, examining the events and their connections with these characters, we find that the, the characters are actually dependent on the events. The event will occur only if it is possible to occur, regardless of the commands. And any event that occurs will have some amount of commands associated with it. Thus, the command, in his mind, must be removed from the cause of the event. And the event's actual root cause must lie somewhere else. We could argue that this, this root cause of any event is the same as the root cause of those commands, which he speaks of. So then he tries to answer the question, what is power and what force produces the movements of peoples? Power is a relation of a certain person to other persons in which that person, right, our, our, our singular person of power, takes the less direct share in an act, the more he expresses opinions, theories, and justifications of the combined action. So in his mind... The, the powerful person is the one, and, and as, we, as we read later, right, the responsibility is, is applied to the person who takes the smallest share of the action. Right? The one who takes the less direct share in an act is seen as one who has power so long as he is opining on that particular thing. Power is the, is the voicing of one's opinion on a topic which comes to pass in Tolstoy's, in Tolstoy's argument here. On the contrary, the force that moves people, what force produces the movements of peoples, right? Tolstoy's answer, the movement of peoples is not produced by the exercise of power, nor by intellectual activity, nor even by a combination of the two, but by the activity of all the men taking part in the event, who are always combined in such a way that those who take most direct part in the action take the smallest share of responsibility for it. Those who are directly acting in war the actual soldiers on the battlefield are not the ones who are given the responsibility in historical in the historical context of Tolstoy. Why? Because in the historian's view, 
They're following the orders of the people in power, or what we call power, right? The historian assumes that, event, that power causes events to occur. Therefore, those who actually enact the events are simply victims of power, victims of those who, who made it their, their will to, to cause these things to occur. But, but Tolstoy refuses to give each individual that ability to off-put moral responsibility for their own actions. It's an, it's an interesting philosophy, and he continues expressing this further on. In its moral aspect, the cause of the event is conceived of as power. In its physical aspect, as those who were subject to that power, right? The people who are subjected to power are the ones who are actually physically bringing about the event. But he's arguing that since the moral activity is inconceivable apart from the physical, right, it doesn't matter what you're causing or what you're saying if nothing happens. No one cares about it, whether it's just, unless somebody does something about it. The cause of the event is found in neither the one or the other, but in the conjunction of the two. The conception of cause is not applicable to the phenomenon we are examining. It's not just singular. It's not just something that happens. It's, it's men. It's men making decisions. And this is why he then goes into this opining on the circle of infinity, right? Relationships, right? What causes a, a dual relationship? I think his science is probably a little bit little outdated, but the point remains even if you update the science. Where is the relationship between things? Right? What, what gives things their, their intrinsic cooperative nature? And therefore he simply says that men form themselves into a certain combination in which all take part. Because that's the way people are. That's what it is to be man. He goes on throughout this discussion to, to talk about many other things and, and perhaps expressing this, this more would give an interesting uh, analysis. However, It will suffice today to, to, to limit the discussion to these things. I highly recommend the book. But the challenge here, for me, at least today, comes in the idea of war. It's, it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently and, and really need to think about you know, so that's that's what this is about really um, wasn't sure if this was going to quite fit with my existing audience but you y'all seem to still be here so here we go 
The world is at this moment in a state of almost unbelievable peace in terms of the old ways of war. There is no great international conflict that we see, at least in the West. And certainly, many of the conflicts that are still raging are brutal and bloody. Civil wars in Africa, right? cultural battles in the, uh, the Middle East, and uh, religious conflict around the world remains. Right? However, the scale of war that we observed in the 20th century may never return. As, as prepared as we are for it, I do not believe it will occur again. Uh, that, that we have reached such a climax of our capacity for destruction that we finally have our, our uh, self-preservation once again arise to take the fore. A desire to live overriding the will to destroy others, uh, thankfully by the grace of God. But even though the amount of peace, I suppose, we, could, we, we would see throughout the world, it is uh, definitely not quiet. There's, there's still much conflict. But we've moved from a conflict of, of, war, of, of open war, right? of men going to fight one another, on the fields of battle, laying their lives down for the things they believe in, to a world in which that can't happen anymore. Where the amount of destruction that would occur through that makes each individual man's life meaningless. The ultimate scale of the fight would remove the, the purpose of the individual fighter. I would say this is, in fact, why we have, we've reached this peace. It's not the strength of arms. It's not, well, it, has, it helps that we've had this escalation. But, but I would argue that the, the root psychological cause of the end of these, these massively violent wars is, is the realization that there are just too many people who would die in any conflict for that one life to matter. There are too many things out of one man's control for him to ultimately be dedicated to laying down his life in war. Uh, and, and to be sure, this is not universal. There are conditions in which brave men will still lay down their lives. Both good and evil men will lay down their lives for the things they believe in. But these men are generally remembered because of the great peace in which we live. 
such that a single man can either cause great good or great evil still, but would not be able to turn the tide of an open war. And so we are stuck fighting smaller, more, more controlled wars, holding to the peace that we have in the hopes that that peace could give the environment for, shall we call it, glory? If a cause were to arise for which a man could lay down his life. That things would be so peaceful that that, that laying down the life would matter again. That going and, and, well, think about Hong Kong, right? Going and protesting would, would matter, right? If, if, if one of those people dies, that's a global story. And so there, are, there is such order that we cannot, we cannot have the kind of war that we desire, and we must maintain the system that exists to allow any potential for that to return. And I think there are those who would look forward to the day when, when this tenuous peace is has devolved when the global world that we live in is is torn down almost it seems inevitably and man returns to a tribal state countries balkanize based on cultural distinctions and once again you have the freedom to fight for what you believe is right in the name of defending your own There is a, an undercurrent I see, I feel, within some parts of the uh, internet culture, a, a, a thing that is so diverse that you, it is hard to singularly define, but that, to put it another way, there are places within the internet where certain thoughts and, and concepts are embraced. And in these places, there are those who would embrace the destruction of the order which we live in, who would embrace the concept of reorganization and a little bit of chaos, as though it were a good thing in and of itself, as though power were altogether bad. And as though freedom were altogether good. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature, I think, therein. Tolstoy gets into it himself, but, but for now I will I'll stick with me. We'll go back to Tolstoy another day. The idea that if we were left to our own devices, we would maintain the system we have today is irrational. Lord of the Flies is a fantastic book in this regard. It explores something true. At the end of the book, the boys are saved by a man at war. And ultimately, the, the, the petty squabbles that the boys were having, which escalated to such dramatic stakes, 
we're emblematic of something that is a part of our very nature. And to constrain these things with even a tenuous peace is healthy so long as we maintain our honor. War, war is a dark and evil thing. We don't recognize it in our generation because our generation has not lived in open war. It hasn't seen open war. The, the culture of the internet does not actually know what war is like, at least not in America and not in Europe. Other places in the world, maybe more so. People who've actually had to live with that, yes, but these are not the kind of people who will spend their days surfing the internet, watching Netflix or going to country clubs. These are people who actually have challenges in their lives that they are working to overcome. They are as disquiet in their world that they must fight to reorganize. And here we sit keyboard warriors asking for the violence that they would so willingly avoid themselves and who, which uh, you know living in we are living in such a place that they would they would love themselves to have and why why is this what is this zeitgeist right great word right Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. What is the zeitgeist that moves us to do this thing? Right? Tolstoy hits on that to a certain extent, right? The actions of men are motivated by the collection of all the men doing these things. I'm sticking with men because it's an easier term. Deal with it. What is it that we opine for war? For. Why is it that we opine for war? It is a, it is a brutal and, and awful thing. Death. Destruction. Pain. Suffering. Violence. Betrayal. Broken cultures, broken families, broken societies, broken world. The amount of skilled artists who have gone to depict the horrors of war is immense. And the quality with which they depict these horrors is beyond what I think I can do in this format. But it is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that we don't, we don't think about because we don't have that context. But what, what context is it that's affecting us for which we seem to desire this twitching of our 
peaceful estate. War feels to us like a lost art. All of our battles, rather than being fought man to man, where one could prove the, 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 amount, to, uh, the amount that they believed something, by not only charging and putting their life down, but by seeking to inspire his brothers in arms to do the same. And when you had a collection of men doing this, if you had an idea that was strong enough to influence a sufficient number of people, you could achieve victory on the battlefield. And if you did not, no strength of arms could give you victory in the long run. There's a f fundamental truth therein. It doesn't matter what kind of technology you have. If you, if you lack conviction, and to a certain extent, conviction with synchronicity to human desires and nature itself, because things that are irrational, that a human cannot have conviction behind, he will not believe for long periods of time. And indeed, war is a long thing. But if you did not have that kind of, of ideas, if you, gee, grammar there, if you did not have those kind of ideas, which could endure that kind of conflict, you would lose those conflicts. You would not endure. And so war demanded of men that they have conviction. It demanded of cultures that they breed conviction. It demanded of women that they raise men with conviction. They raised boys to believe the things that were taught them and raise women to withstand the brutality of losing men, of suffering their own awful miserable fates should the war go ill. It taught leaders to remain vigilant to their culture and traditions, knowing that these are what gave them power in the first place. Their ability, their ancestors' ability, or their office's ability to sustain their position away from the direct actions of violence. As Tolstoy would, would argue, right? The ability of a person in that position of that leader to stay off the battlefield. What did they have to do? Well, they had to hold to something. They had to keep everyone else there which means that the people who were there on the battlefield needed to have a reason to be there. And the leader had a role in playing to do that. A responsibility to his people to ensure that his people could continue being who they were. Our, our battles now are political, cultural, how many times have you heard the term culture war, right? It's not a war. It's not even a battle. 
It's a struggle, right? Sure. But it's not a war. There are no casualties in the culture war. There are a few... There are, there are some extreme conditions, right, where, where violence breaks out. But that's not the culture war. The culture war is fought between artists. Or is it? Or is it fought between the people who hold their convictions and support the artists? Does the power rely... <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Does the power of the culture lie in the ones who execute culture or the ones who consume it? If a movie about awful people didn't make any money, would it get made? It, the culture war is is not a is not a true war, but the underlying principles remain the same. And yet, it is not something that we as men understand yet. We do not understand that that the battles of character are equally valuable to the battles of life. That in a world of peace, you must be unwilling to lay down your values and principles. You must be flexible, sure. Why? Because one who, who doesn't flex, right? a line that does not retreat eventually, will be broken utterly, and defeat is guaranteed. But there must be a willingness to lay down your cultural position, your friends, acquaintances, status. Right? These, are the, these are the casualties of the culture war, if we want to call it a war. Perhaps we need a different term. Or perhaps we need to recognize if it is a war, that we must be ready to sacrifice something. The evils that we see in the world today, we cannot end by strength of arms. The March for Life is not a violent march. It is a march by those who believe that the second largest cause of death in America should be made illegal. I did a statistical thing on this, right? I don't know about exactly second largest, but at least in the year twenty, the year twenty fifteen, uh, if you if you look at the percentage of people who die that entire year, or excuse me, I'm going to rephrase this, right? In twenty seventeen, the percentage of people who died every year, about. 23% died from heart disease, 21% died from cancer. Everything else is a little bit lower. Those numbers don't include abortion. Extrapolating out from abortion trends using the most reliable statistics we have puts abortion at the second highest cause of death. And yet we can't go out and bomb clinics because it's wrong. 
So how do we fight? We fight by showing our conviction. One day every year. No. Because the war, the war continues. So now we fight at the ballot box. And why do you think politics has become such a violent endeavor, such a, such a divided endeavor? Because the battles that we fight now in slandering one another and looking at the slander we hear about the other side without giving them an honest look, those, those battles are now fought in, in newsrooms. In, in YouTube videos, in the, in the houses of every single person who chooses what they are going to listen to, what they are going to consider, what they're going to say to their neighbors, how they're going to interact with the world, what they're going to believe and what they're going to uphold. And I think the problem right now is that we have reached a level of division in the fundamental things that drive people. That in past generations with different levels of technology, with different ideas and values, we would be at war. 200 years ago, we would be at war, but we're not. And our, our, our souls know it. We know that, that there is something brewing here. There's a, a difference, a distinction that is so glaring that we don't know what to do with it because in the entirety of human history, we, we've only had a few ways of handling this and, and the, well, the most reliable seemed to be war. We, we don't have that ability now. Now, the, the wars we fight, are fought with lies and deceits and slander by by breaking up families because we we didn't take the time to consider whether or not a person was compatible with our actual worldview whether they were a part of our country our our religious or philosophical or political country or whatever and so the, the, the weak bonds that used to tie us, that, that now tie us together, are not sufficient because of the fundamental differences that we have. Because we aren't willing to simply look and say, do I actually have the same world view as this other person? Do we share a common culture, values? If I went to war, would this person be behind me or in front of me? Would they be supporting me or my enemies? Perhaps that's a bipolar view, but there was a, an understanding at some point in time. And we don't have to worry about that anymore. And I think the, the, the rates of broken families that we see today is probably evidence that there is a war going on that doesn't know it's being fought. We do see death 
on a massive scale. Destruction of homes, of cities. Where rather than, than being governed by a rule of law, we are, or, or culture or religion, we are governed by the rule of money. And all our decisions seem to be based on that which passes away in a single generation. It's a hedonism that we abhor somewhere in our, in our souls because we know that it's not sustainable and we feel that we are powerless to create the world that we want. But war is not the answer. We may have lost the ability to fight for honor, to fight for control, to, to have an easy way of perceiving and achieving the masculine goals, right? the, the male maturity. In, in, in replacement of those, we've gained longer lives, comforts, order and peace for our neighbors. And we're beginning to question if it's worth it. If, if this peace and hedonism that we live in is worth the inaction, but it is, it most certainly is. But the problem is we don't, we don't see the solution as a, as a call to arms because we don't need to abandon honor. We don't need to abandon the shunning of hedonistic ideas. We don't need to abandon the idea that a culture must endure hardships because this is a war. This is a war and we are just not fighting it. We've, we've no reason, we have no, no reason not to engage ourselves in making sure our culture endures. In, in raising men for this new battle and women who can endure the struggles that might come, women who can maintain that. We have even longer to fight, even though the other side, right, the enemies in this fight, will not suffer death when we are victorious over them. That is a, a wonderfully good thing. Because first, it means we also will not suffer that death. And second, it means that victory will not be achieved through death and destruction. Now, it may mean that victory can only be achieved through sacrifice. 
And the world that we live in it has, has so numbed us to the idea of sacrifice that we are unwilling to have that. We've forgotten what it means to stand our ground. We're valuing our social status and our social comforts. We like the idea of quiet because it keeps us happy and stable and satisfied. We've enjoyed the ability to simply hide away, run to the mountains and, and stay out of the conflict. But the problem is the conflict has continued reaching toward us. And even if we do not go to war, we must prepare for it. For if we simply stay in the mountains, we will eventually be found and there be caught off guard and unable to fight. We've thought, hey, if we just let them alone, if we just keep to ourselves, maybe, maybe everything will be fine. But it won't be. They don't have to anymore. At a certain point, they can come, and they will come. Who are they? Again, this is, this is, we'll get there. We've had mindless tolerance, accepting anything and everything that comes our way, rather than questioning whether or not it is a good thing. We're not willing to draw distinctions based on a firm foundation, standing with, with backbone against the things that would come to bend us to their own wills. We are a lazy and carefree people who worry more about gaining further comforts than about maintaining our honor, our dignity, our pride, and our culture, and above all, our faith. We forget the works of those who came before us, of those who laid down their lives, who disciplined themselves, some, some who did not have to lay down their lives, but who sacrificed much who endured much struggle and ch challenge, who overcame temptation for personal gain to rather follow the path of virtue. And we have come along like vampires and drank out their virtue and used it for our own well-being. We've abandoned the structures that were designed to endure hardship, that were designed to preserve these things, the family and the church. We've abandoned them and allowed ourselves to fall into disrepair. We believe that everything's okay. And yes, things, things are okay but they are not good, and they never will be, not in this life. They will not be good anymore. They were once, and we decided that wasn't good enough for us. And so now, frankly, they might not even be okay, right? Just, just fine, you know, just, 
endurable. But only endurable to a certain extent. Because at some point we have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is acceptable and this is not. We have to say, this is good and this is not. The abortion idea I brought up earlier is one, is one position where people have actually stood and, and said this is wrong. But why is everything else fallen astray? Why did we not do that when no-fault divorce came along? Why did we not do that when the sexual revolution came and had their own rallies? Why, was, why were there no counter-rallies? It was, I would argue, my, my assumption is that it was because people didn't actually realize that it would work. That the sexual revolution would take hold. They thought things would just be fine. And when their cultural enemies walked and fought, they stayed home and were swept off that battlefield. Why were there no marches when countless other things happened? I'm not going to get into it yet because I'm kind of going off the cuff and I'm on a roll. But fill in your own blanks, right? What are the things that, that matter to you that you have not stood up for? What are the things that, that you believe in that you've just allowed to slide? Am I saying that we must go out and confront everyone? No. What I'm, what I'm rather saying is we need to understand that war doesn't just stop because the violent version of it does. Right? I, I realized earlier in the, in the podcast I thought, well, it's not a war. But you know what? It should be. We're just not looking at it that way. It is going to be awful. And there are going to be some miserable consequences. But let me tell you, these consequences are nothing. Nothing compared to what a violent war, a war of, of arms, would cost us. The war of words, the war of culture, the war of belief, the price there that we pay is much more bearable. And if we hold together and do not break, we may not actually lose. There is hope yet. There's, there's, there's no reason to, to totally despair that we could regain the values we had before. The honor of conflict, of, of going forth to battle that which was wrong for the sake of the things that are fundamental in our faith and cultures, right? The honor gained in entering conflict, willing to lose something, can still remain. That honor is the honor of someone who's willing to speak the truth openly with conviction and who is consequently slandered for it. That is a warrior. The other side has them, right? Social justice warriors, 
people who put themselves out on the line. Does that mean we need to adopt their tactics? No, I would say their tactics are foolish. Very foolish. But they are understanding that they are in a war and must be a fighter for something is correct. We don't have to fight on their battlefield, and in fact, if we try, we will lose. But we must fight. We must prepare for war, even if we do not fight. And we must prepare those around us to suffer the consequences of not fighting if that is their choice. Regarding the last one, those of us who do wish to engage, who do wish to see what goes on around us, must encourage and support those who do not. Must help them in our efforts to get them to see what we see. We must give them a glimpse of what we have and a glimpse of the future that we foresee if we should not prepare so that they know that there is some risk of that occurring and they know what steps to take should it happen. So that if the front lines break because of their absence, at the very least, they can flee. Right? And this is not a physical fleeing. Again, I mean, this is a philosophical. This is a cultural fleeing. Right? So that if they know that certain things happen, maybe... You don't get to watch the movies you want to watch. Maybe when you see the culture that, that makes those decay to such a point, then you can't do it anymore. But what to fill the void? That's what we've lost. We've abandoned what we had and, and become aliens to our homeland, to our, to our original cultures of conviction, to cultures that believed in things that were beyond the simple pleasures of an idle life. For me, Western culture, reading culture, the idea that it was good to better to sit down and read a book than, than sit and watch a movie. I mean, I was raised that way. I want, to, I want to fight for that again. But it's a hard thing to fight on the front lines alone. And I'm not alone. But there are too few of us. And conviction is weak. Right. We, we are still motivated not by the powerful, but by the thing that drives us in unison together. I think part of the struggle now is, is really that this war is not by strength of arms, which men are used to, and it also engages women, which they're not used to. And so to, we must come together. We must fight together. It is more important now than ever to have that common ground from which we can sally forth, from which we can defend ourselves. 
We cannot achieve victory in the long run. I don't, I don't think we can. But perhaps we can achieve a tenuous peace with a constant vigilant defense of our own lands. Occasionally we'll have to beat back waves of contrary ideas, but we must develop a vigilant culture, a culture of vigilance with regards to the culture. We must question the things we see rather than simply taking them at face value. We must analyze the things we do rather than assuming they are good and constantly reevaluate our strategies, tactics, and our way of life to understand whether we're right, whether the position we are standing in is one of strength, is one of truth, is one that is properly positioned on our land and on a position of strength. From a, from a standpoint of ideas. So ultimately, what is it? What is it that we are, we are doing now? Right. What, am I, what am I saying? <laughs> I'll try to summarize. War used to be the system by which people could place their convictions in something together with their brothers and stand for those things. Stand for their land, stand for their people, stand for their way of life. They would fight and lay down their lives and take the lives of anyone who would take that from them. But we live now in a world that is beyond those things. That is beyond martial conflicts. And in this world, it is not sufficient to lay down one's life. That's not enough. In fact, it's, it's not going to work to defend your way of life. Rather, what we must do is lay down our comforts when we believe that the underlying culture behind them is contrary to ours. We must take up our own culture and defend it. Because we are now constantly under assault within the things that we desire by people who have different intents, different desires for our wishes, who want us to desire other things, to value other things. And they appeal to our baser nature, to our sinful, corrupt, pleasure-seeking nature, as though that were the ultimate good. And those who, who knew that it wasn't, who were so willing to abandon their own pleasure that they would lay down their life for it. Our ancestors did that, laid down their lives. They fought, they died, so that we would have the ability to maintain our culture, and now we lay it down willingly. We come in and we surrender to those who would supplant them. No. 
there will be struggles, there will be trials. And, and it will require constant vigilance to overcome. But it is necessary. And even though neither men nor women are prepared for this, that is the culture war. That is what we're fighting. And we don't have to lay down the long value of good things that comes from war. But we must carry that common spirit among us by which people are moved to do anything. Tolstoy's right in this regard. People do things because it's what they do, right? What motivates them? What what motivates people to do the things they do, though? What drives them to those ends? And how can we affect those around us to ensure that the ends they are driving toward are good? We'll just have to explore that another day, but. Suffice it today to say, it is our duty to find out. It is our duty to explore what we can do to encourage our brethren to fight the good fight. To, if, you know, within the faith, within, within the church, fight the good fight of faith. Within the family, fight the good fight of culture, of truth order within the political sphere fight the good fight of goodness justice truth honor integrity the rule of law because we can't do it on the battlefield anymore but that doesn't mean that it's gone for good. It doesn't mean that we don't have to fight. It just means that we're not ready for the battle that is before us now. So come fight with me. I cannot fight alone, but I'm not alone.